Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Evan Kopp, our producer, and today we have John Densmore, the drummer from The Doors, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member. Uh, he was inducted in 1993 uh, and was a founding member of one of the signature bands of Southern California and of the 1960s. And uh, today we're going to talk to him about his new book. We're going to talk to him about Jim Morrison and The Doors, and we're going to talk to him about the world we live in. Uh, Evan, I'm really excited. It's uh, it's kind of a big deal to have a member of the Doors in the house. Oh yeah, I was just shocked when I heard that he wanted to come on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward <laughs> to hearing him talk. But don't say shocked. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's a it's a treat to have him uh, visit. And uh, the reason I think he's doing it is that uh, we have a little background together. He and I. I uh, I've known John since 2005. Uh, when I did a story on him uh, for the Los Angeles Times, as you know, Evan, I, I wrote for the LA Times for 21, 22 years or so, and uh, I have been a journalist for uh, 10 more than that. And uh, uh, one of the big stories I got to do is, is this story on John Densmore. It actually won a couple of awards, and uh, it, was, it was picked for this uh, inclusion in a book called uh, DiCapo Press's uh, best American music writing. Uh, and it, it was kind of a business story. I was mostly uh, writing about rock and roll and about um, films, pop culture for the LA Times. And, and most of the stuff I did was kind of featurey or profile driven or kind of uh, event driven. I didn't really do reviews at all though. But this one was a little bit more of a business story. Uh, and I was very, very proud of it. And it ran on the front page. I happen to have it here. Would you like me to read you a little bit? Yeah, actually, I would, and I think our listeners would, too, because I think it'll give a great view as to who John Densmore is. All right, so let's see. Bob Dylan is singing The Times They Are A-Changing in a television ad for healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente these days, and really, who could argue? With Led Zeppelin pitching Cadillacs, the Rolling Stones strutting in an AmeriQuest mortgage ad, and Paul McCartney warbling for Fidelity Investments, it's clear that the old counterculture heroes of classic rock are now firmly entrenched as the house band of corporate America. That only makes the case of John Densmore all the more intriguing. Once, back when rock and roll still seemed dangerous, Densmore was the drummer for The Doors, the band with dark hits such as Light My Fire and People Are Strange. That band more or less went into the grave with lead singer Jim Morrison in 1971, but like all top classic rock franchises, it now has the chance to exploit a lucrative afterlife in television commercials. Offers keep coming in too, such as the $15 million dangled by Cadillac last year to lease the song, break on through to the other side to hawk their luxury SUVs. To the surprise of the corporate world and to the chagrin of his former bandmates, Densmore vetoed that idea. He walked away from the money. He did the same thing when Apple Computer came by with a $4 million offer. And every time another, quote, deodorant company wanted to use light my fire, unquote. The reason? Okay, now, prepare to get a lump in your throat or to roll your eyes, depending on which side of the generation gap you're on. Here's why, he said, quote, people lost their virginity to this music. People got high for the first time to this music. I've had people say kids died in Vietnam listening to this music. Other people say they know someone who didn't commit suicide because of this music. On stage, when we played these songs, they felt mysterious and magic, and they're not for rent. So that's John Densmore, and uh, a guy that walked away from millions and millions of dollars and ended up getting sued for it by his 
fellow bandmates, Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, uh, sued John Densmore. You know what they sued him for, Evan? Uh, no, what? Fiduciary irresponsibility. And that is not very rock and roll. No, that is. <laughs> I think it's, fiduciary responsibility is never said in any rock and roll song ever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, John Branca, who's an attorney who worked on the Cadillac proposal I talked to way back then. John Branca is also the guy that uh, brokered the deal for Michael Jackson to purchase uh, through Sony ATV to purchase the Beatles catalog. Uh, you know, one of the most famous business deals in the history of the music industry. I talked to John Branca about Tensmore uh, back in 2005 and Branca told me, quote, everybody wanted him to do it. Um, I told him that really people don't frown on this anymore it's considered a branding exercise for the music but he told me he couldn't just sell a song to a company that was polluting the world you know i shook my head but hey you have to respect that how many of your principles would you reconsider when people start talking millions of dollars so uh again that's john branca talking about his client john densmore walking away from millions and millions of dollars and uh so that's how i met john and he he got some notoriety because of that story that i wrote uh uh, the story got some accolades, but it was also followed by a lot of other outlets. 60 Minutes, for instance, did a, a piece on John after that. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, I, I, not a lot of people would put, you know, they say put your money where your mouth is. Uh, I think, what, you know, John's a, a spiritual guy and he told me at the time that, uh, you know, he knew that Jim uh, did not want to sell uh, Doors songs for commercial use. He, he, it was something that he found very offensive. Uh, and uh, the band had instituted a veto rule. Uh, any member could veto any deal because of that uh, animus that he had toward it. Uh, and it was his, his uh, uh, outrage had been triggered by the three members of the Doors uh, that stayed behind while he went to Paris. They had brokered a deal to let uh, Light My Fire be used in a Ford Opal commercial for the you know, Ford Motors back in the 60s. The commercial never aired, despite uh, what the scene depicted in Oliver Stone's movie shows. Um, but it uh, infuriated Jim, and that's, that's what led to his taking a stand on the advertising. And uh, I think John said to me once, he goes, you know, I made a lot of money by being the guy that played drums uh, for Jim Morrison and uh, we had something really special and I, I appreciate what he did and what he meant to me and I know he didn't want this so I'm, I'm just not going to do it because I might see him again you know and uh, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, pretty cool that all these years later uh, he's still taking that stand and and uh, it's a rare stand like you know th there were some other bands that had long resisted you know uh, Bruce Springsteen long resisted letting his music be used in any sort of advertising Led Zeppelin was a holdout for a very very long time the Eagles Bob Dylan you know uh, but one by one they uh, they you uh, two one by one they all found a deal that uh, that they could live with that you know you got this money uh, this new infusion of money and also uh, as a lot of people point out, also puts the music in front of a new audience and a younger audience and allows them to uh, discover this music. You know, when Led Zeppelin had that Cadillac commercial, there was a huge surge in in, in Led Zeppelin downloads on iTunes and, and uh, through other music sharing platforms. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a clear-cut sellout topic like it was in the 60s, you know, um, when it, it, it was anathema. Uh, to do something with corporate America, I think deals with like iTunes and Microsoft that they, uh, there's art direction and, and standards and production values. And uh, some people feel like their integrity is uh, kept in place. Um, John has never been able to reconcile that with what he knows Jim Morrison wanted. So but anyway, that's kind of a long introduction, but that's, uh, that's who John Densmore is. And he's, uh, you know, written plays and he's, had several books, uh, two memoirs, and now there's a new book, which is called The Seekers. And it's about conversations with fellow musicians, fellow artists, and fellow spiritual pilgrims wandering this world, uh, looking for uh, enlightenment and rock and roll. So that's, uh, 
That's who John Densmore is, and he's going to join us today in Mindspace. Yeah, and I know he's going to share some of those stories from the book. I think you, you're going to ask him about some some specific people he's run across, and he's going to give us a little bit of background, which is going to be great. But knowing him, I'm sure the conversation is going to go all over the place because you know he just likes to have fun, likes to talk about what's on his mind. So uh, well, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. We're all just riders on the storm, man. <laughs> <laughs> nice well let's get the let's let's uh let's knock on the door so yeah let's let's, talk let's see who answers john uh it's so great to have you on the show because you're a man of so many talents not only are you in the rock and roll hall of fame obviously as a founding member of the doors i think you were inducted in 1993 but you're also a playwright and you're also an essayist and you're also an author. Uh, and uh, with The Seekers, your new book, your latest, uh, it's just such a great read. Congratulations on the book. Hey, thanks. A playwright. Hmm. Well, I did one <laughs> and I don't think I'll be doing any more. Well, how many do you need to do? I think if you do one right, you're a playwright. <laughs> so what? we won some award, didn't we, Jeff, for the L.A. Times uh, Excellence Award or something? Yes. Well, we won several awards. Uh, uh, that's very kind of you to remember that. You know, there's been so many people that have written about you through the years, but I'm flattered you would remember. But in 2005, I did a front page story for the L.A. Times on John. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it got a lot of balance, as we say, in the business. And it ended up being picked for uh, Tacapo Press's Best American Music wow. uh, Collection. And it won an LA Times uh, Award of Excellence for yours truly. And uh, it's, uh, it's 60 Minutes did a follow-up version of uh, the story, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of bounce uh, because it was all about... It was based on my second self-centered memoir. I have three. <laughs> exactly. Well, who wants... Who would like a selfless memoir? Like, <laughs> that's, that's the opposite of what a memoir should be. So, uh, but it was a good story. It was about the Doors uh, music being essentially the only, uh, well, it was about the Doors being the only band that wasn't submitting itself to be the house band of corporate America because everybody was lining up at the trough, so to speak. Uh, yeah, how about the $300 million trough that came up? Holy yeah, exactly. moly, let's not go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the new book. There's a trough I don't want to look into. Yeah, exactly. It's too deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you never know if that horse is going to make it. Um, but uh, uh, the book is great because, you know, what I'd like about it is that uh, it, it reveals to the reader something that I've seen through the years in, in getting to know you is that your music has always been associated or maybe not even associated, maybe is defined by uh, spirituality uh, and spirituality defined by music. It, there, there's a lot of connection uh, in you between those things. It's hard for you to almost to separate them, I think. Yeah. Well, I do have a chapter on Ram Das and the Dalai Lama, don't I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great chapter. And 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 the title of the book, uh, The Seekers kind of, uh, yeah. you know, it could have been the stars or it could have been the, uh, the, the, the voices or something like that. But uh, that title kind of con uh, conjures up uh, pilgrimage just in the, uh, the, the sense of it. Jeff, I would say maybe that all of us are seekers, you know, we're trying to navigate this road of a human existence and what the hell does it mean and where the hell are we going here? It's a good question, especially in this uh, holiday season. And how are you, John? How are you doing in, in, the, in the pandemic like the rest of us? Fine. You know, I mean, I was 76 uh, a month ago or so. And so, uh, you know, being careful, and 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 quite sad over all the suffering and uh like that and uh, you know i do i finally see a little light coming i'm going to get political you know biden and the vaccine and and uh you know we, we'll get out of this tunnel but wow i didn't know it was going to be this ominous it's been just uh strange days to borrow a term you know yeah, it took away our casual joys. Going to destroy. Uh, we'll find a new town. Or yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and the polarized. It's everything's so polarized these days too. What do you mean? Uh, politically and, and culturally, oh, uh, there's oh, so much polarization. Yeah, right, it seems like right, people right, are divided right. so much. Yeah, I'm I'm really chewing on how to reach across the aisle. 
uh, facts don't work. Um, and so I just some kind of shared humanity is the only thing we can connect with to everybody else. And uh, maybe that'll break the ice. You know, how do you think it compares this year? Uh, it's just the sort of the emotion of it or uh, the the desperation of it to something like 68. I mean, that's the year that people would point to and say, if there was another year where things felt like it was just flying off the rails uh, in so many different ways, or like a country that felt like it was ruptured, a lot of people yeah. would point to 68. Do you, do you see a comparison there? Is it so, just apples and oranges to you? No, there's some similarities. Uh, I mean, I would say that 68 was worse. Well, maybe at least it felt that way because every night on television was a napalming of you know, people in Vietnam and it was just horrific. I mean, that's the one thing that the government folks learned. That don't show the bodies when we come back, uh, when they come back. And uh, now I'm going to get political again. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, our, our our Agent Orange, <clears throat> Spike Lee's name for uh, the head of our country, uh, this divisiveness is. Um, I said to a friend, "Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad he's on the way out, and and uh, uh, at least he didn't start a, a war." And my friend said, "He did a civil war." Yeah. Went, oh right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why I'm thinking. Certainly, about the civil cold war. Yeah, it's the cold war of <laughs> yeah. our. Uh, so version of our civil war here in our country, uh, uh, just the division throughout. Maybe music is a key to, you know. If, yeah. If, you know, I know there's a lot of folks who like Doors music and 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 give me shit for getting on a soapbox and being a, a liberal or whatever, and I I let it slide. Uh, so maybe we can somehow connect that way. I don't know. This book is. Hopefully, maybe. I mean, I started this several years ago. I wanted to do a tip of the hat to people who fed me, musicians. And here I am in the pandemic putting a book out. But maybe it's kind of a healing salve. You know, music is a, a pretty good medicine for the soul. And so maybe it can calm us down a bit. I hope so. You know, the, the danger is that uh, things have gotten so personal that it's hard to come back from you're un-American or you're a bad person or you're, you know, when you're, as a journalist, like, you know, they're, they're saying that people wearing shirts like, get a rope, get a tree, grab a journalist, you know, uh, wearing shirts like that to Trump rallies and stuff like that. It's hard to come back and know where to start. You know, where, how do you build bridges after that? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe you just wait. Yeah. And maybe folks uh, realize when the virus gets closer to home that they better put on a mask or something, you know. For sure. Now, one of the things that uh, this book is, is so much fun to read as a rock and roll fan. Uh, and uh, there's the, the, the tingle of excitement as you introduce these different figures, you know, these icons. You know, for you, what, uh, what of the sections or of the... the uh, the seekers that you write about, was there one that was particularly challenging for you because uh, they were elusive or because you uh, uh, had so much to say? Or did you find that uh, you had kind of a, a ready to go kind of ver version of your encounters with them? Well, I've been nervous that I, you know, I went and uh, dissed Van Morrison a little bit, you know, and <laughs> God, what is he doing now? Him and Clapton, what do they did? A song for, for the uh, uh, folks who are uh, uh, roadies and, and all that, everybody out of work. But then Van took it a little further and said, no lockdown, we should have concerts or whatever the hell. Oh, and then, uh, um, um, what's her name? Um, oh, that singer, uh, she wrote a thing in her Facebook uh ricky lee jones oh yeah ricky. oh check that out that was, now i don't feel bad at all <laughs> <laughs> i mean i you know I, as the story goes he invited me to play gloria at the hollywood bowl and 
uh, was supposed to introduce me and didn't. And I was standing on that stage with 10,000 people embarrassed to hell. And then I saw a tambourine under the backup singers and picked it up and played it and acted like that was the plan. Nice. Uh, And then he disappeared and, and, and the manager said they were sorry. And and then in a live version of Van Morrison at the Hollywood Bowl, they credited me on tambourine. Hey, wow. <laughs> wow. Such a great... And so I, I, I had trouble for a few months. I, when I heard his songs on the radio, I'd changed the channel. And then I, you know, I heard uh, We Were Born Before the Wind, also, yeah, sure. younger, also younger than the sun, and the Bonnie Both is one, and we sailed in the main I, I can't got to love him for that. And Ricky Lee spells that out. She says, well, I guess I got to put a like a black box around his old material to make it secure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of those things like how do you you weigh the past versus uh, you know, the way that he carries on with the present. I, I, Van Morrison, as, as you know, is is infamous in the music industry for being like one of the, the kind of the ogres in, in the music industry. Like I've, I've heard that ever since I started writing about music in 99. You said that, not me. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, Jim was uh, difficult. I mean, in the Paul Simon chapter, he, I talk about how he was rude to Paul. Yeah. And I thought our career was ruined. And uh, so, uh, you know, craziness and self-destruction, and creativity come in the same package sometimes, not yeah. all the time. Yeah. I heard a funny story about Van Morrison. Do you want to hear it? It's very short. Okay. Okay. There was a, uh, uh, a party at Bono's house for Salman Rushdie. Uh, and Bono called to invite Van Morrison. This is a true story. Bono called to invite Van Morrison, but he couldn't say Rushdie's name over the phone because at this time, after, uh, you know, the, the fatwa, uh, you know, Salman oh, Rushdie. yeah, yeah, yeah author of satanic verses would had a a, yeah. a bounty on his head or not a bounty yeah, yeah. but a death death order uh, throughout the islamic world uh and van morrison get, became frustrated that bono wouldn't say who the party's for and just kept hanging up on bono so they finally sent a guy to van morrison's house an agent to tell who the party was for and van morrison got in the car and went along he brought his wife they got there all these people are there and some is well, his eye line keeps dipping down toward Van's wife's uh, outfit, so to speak. And, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Salman Rushdie is apparently, uh, what's the, the polite term for it? A horn dog. So he uh, apparently was macking on Van Morrison's wife. And Van, he's, he gets into his cups and he has enough of it. And he grabs Salman Rushdie and pushes him up against the wall and goes, what game are you playing? Uh, at which point, Salman Rushdie's security detail, British agents, draw down on Van Morrison at Bono's house, and Bono has to stop them. Please don't shoot Van Morrison in my house. That's the whole story. Gee, you know, um, I was reading Salman's uh, autobiography. What I'm trying to think of the title. It was so clever because he wrote it. He he said it was too arrogant to write in first person. It's all third person. And then the, the title is a combination of some great authors because, you know, he was he wrote, wrote about being in hiding a lot. And and people, you know, uh, literary critics who knew all of his novels and everything said, you know, that that book wasn't quite as good as whatever, you know. Yeah. And I would read one friggin paragraph in that book and die thinking I, could, I would never be able to write a a paragraph so fucking brilliant so there you go the guy's got a brilliant mind i said and he's he's fascinating too you know i sat next to him at a u2 concert not next to him like six seats away from him this is before that whole van morrison thing uh and he was it was like people were they didn't know what to do when they saw him because they there's this excitement of he's not he's in danger he's not supposed to be in public he's here and stuff it's kind of an interesting sort of celebrity aura that he had It it was unique Writers. Writers. <laughs> or as I like to call them, wrongers. <laughs> I used to be a writer. Now I'm a wronger. <laughs> <laughs> so with, uh, uh, you know, one of the ones that I really enjoyed is uh, when you're talking about Willie Nelson. Uh, uh-huh. t- tell a little bit about that section and uh, what you thought of Willie 
Uh, and when you mentioned Paul Simon, it reminded me of uh, your your introduction to Willie about the the sort of things that you need to be cautious about when you when you step through his doorway. Yeah, but <laughs> but uh, first uh, let's think about Paul Simon, who's eh, what is he? He's pushing eighty, I don't know, seventy seven or eight. Willie's eighty six or seven or something. I don't know what. So here's two guys that are mentors for me because I'm I'm 10 years behind and they're still vital and creative as hell. Yeah. And so it, it, it inspires me. And and maybe that's the key to longevity. I don't know. But yeah, I um, I got to know Willie's kids, Micah and uh, Lucas. Great guys, great musicians. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Micah said, hey, you know, just just have one hit or whatever. <laughs> so I, I the first thing I said when I met him was that Willie, I'm a cheap high. <laughs> um, you can smoke for me. And um, I got to say, though, other than the pot, it, it, that's not it. He's 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 so, so t talented and he's so open. You look in his eyes and he's just real and he's full of love and it's infectious. Really cool. You're absolutely right. The guy is just, he's, he represents music in a lot of ways. It, it seems like the distance between music, he's, it's the shortest line between, you know, the shortest distance between two points is a, is a straight line. And it seems like music and the audience, the straightest line, the shortest distance is Willie Nelson. He, he feels yeah. like music when he, when he talks and when he sings. And, and the, the crystalline quality of his voice is very, very unique. Oh, forget it. Uh, it, 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 it has everything in it and a lifetime and yeah. you know he's lived it i mean he think about in the beginning back in uh, nashville you know he had braids and he was uh, looked like a hippie and he's in a redneck town and got a lot of shit but he wrote you know number one patsy klein and whatever and you know the, the road he moved to austin and he all his long-haired uh, musician friends went to the golf course to play and they got kicked off and then Willie bought the golf course. We'll, <laughs> we'll show them. And through a lot of, you know, uh, financial and marital and he's still a loving, soulful guy. So yeah. there you go. It's amazing. And I love it. Um, I talked to Ray Price once and, you know, Ray Price was Willie's roommate uh -huh. for a time. And before that, he had been Hank Williams' roommate. So think about that for a second. Like, and I don't mean Hank Williams Jr., obviously. I mean Hank Williams. So Ray Price, his roommates with Hank Williams and Willie Nelson, two of the greatest songwriters in the history of anything. Uh, and he tells that great story about how Willie, he's playing this melody. He says, I have this song. I'm, and he sings, stupid, stupid for feeling so lonely. And he sings the whole song. And Ray looks at him and goes, you know, Willie, Nobody wants to be stupid. People don't mind being <laughs> crazy, though. <laughs> it's the Ray. best note ever. <laughs> now, catch me up on Ray Price. Uh, the Champagne Cowboy. Yeah. He's a, he's yeah. a Western yeah. uh, singer, right. and he, yeah. he kind of was... Uh, I yeah, I remember. Yeah. ...kind of polished sound, you know, production. I met him out at South by Southwest. Uh-huh. There's an era when rock and roll and country didn't get along well, and, and as you know better than I do, and uh, th there were so many people in Southern California that were kind of testing the boundaries of things, and and uh, and I know that you, like Duke Ellington, think that there's two kinds of music, good and bad, you know. <laughs> but uh, that that's an interesting thing to see that divide, and and uh, uh, it's nice when people cross over. But Willie was a big part of that too, wasn't he? Oh yeah, and you know his Fourth uh, of July picnics have. All, everybody yeah. rednecks hippies all of it yeah. and and i i asked micah his son i said okay um kicking hip, kicking hippies asses and raising hell what the hell they look like hippies now what's going on <laughs> and micah said well when merle and willie discovered pot that all changed <laughs> yeah outlaws that's great yeah that's funny stuff you know, you and I met in 2005, if I remember right. And uh, after that, after that story uh, published, uh, you and I kept in touch. And, and I, I was I got to watch uh, you from a near distance as you built a friendship. And I think it's a friendship that likely inspired this book or, or partially inspired it. But with uh, Dudamel and, uh, you know, I, some of our listeners outside Southern California might not know 
uh, about him. Uh, but could you talk a little bit about him and, and how invigorating that, that artistic yeah, friendship yeah. was for you? Yeah, yeah. Gustavo Dudamel is the conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic. He's now in his early 30s or something, give or take. Uh, just incredibly gifted. He came out of Venezuela's El Sistema program. Uh, you know, he was conducting little toys when he was four or five and telling his mom to put on symphonies. And he, co he conducts from memory. Uh, not, not the modern pieces, but, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, all of that. And backstage, he'll kind of look at the manuscript and refresh himself, and then he'll go out there, and it's all in his head. Uh, we're talking gifted here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and an incredible, warm, loving guy. You know, he introduced me to Yo-Yo Ma, and I, the same feeling I had, and I thought, oh, I, I get it. These guys are, are just at the pinnacle, and they're not worried about proving anything. They're just... Right there and it's really inspiring and due to mel god he's he's so aware of all kinds of music he crosses musical borders you know and that's what makes him good yeah. and and the doors you know we were certainly aware of uh, kurt vile and uh, uh, uh john cage and beethoven and sure. and Dudamel is aware of salsa and reggae and Led Zeppelin. He he knows about it. And yeah. I, I go backstage after he conducts Mahler and he says, Juan, Mahler is heavy metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds and like I a go, guitar solo, right? And yeah, he's, he hums the melody. And it's, <laughs> so uh, classical music is uh, previously, uh, you know, up, uptight, kind of stiff, whatever the hell. And he's, if you're open to music, then you have a broader palette. And you're not going to do, I'm not going to do country music. He's not going to do rock and roll. Right. But if, if I, I sense something, a moment or something in a different genre that'll help me, I'm taking it. Absolutely. That's yeah. what Dudamel's up to. Yeah. It's the authenticity of it too, right? I mean, there's, there's things like, even if you don't, you, if you've never heard <clears throat> reggae in your life and you hear the redemption song by Bob Marley, huh. it, it's authentic. You feel it, even though yeah. you may not connect uh, intellectually, even if you don't have any sense of his cultural background, you instantly have a platform for getting that information because, because the, the music is, is so powerful. You know, it, it is authentic uh, in, in the sense of that you, it's undeniable almost. Yeah, well, Redemption Song covers the entire <laughs> civil rights movement. It's just beautiful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and one of the things about the Doors that uh, makes their sound so distinctive uh, is is with you and Ray Manzarek uh, and, and the sound that you guys created without a bass player uh, and the way that that uh, tilted the sound and the way that you guys uh, interacted, you know, Robbie and Jim as well. Uh, you know, the Doors, uh, a Doors record sounded different on the radio than any other band. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and if you guys had had a bass player, how different do you think the, the course of the band's sonic adventure would have been? Yeah. Well, we auditioned bass players. We had a girl bass player for a New York minute. And we were frustrated. We thought we sounded like another white blues band, like the Rolling Stones. And then Ray and I discovered this uh, keyboard bass, which I document in the chapter on Ray. And, um, you know, he goes, well, you know, I think maybe I could just play Boogie Woogie that I learned in Chicago with my left hand, and that'll be the bass. And, uh, you know, keyboards, organ with my right hand. And so it, it forced these simple don don do don do 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 kind of repetitive bass lines. And actually, in the studio way back, um, we didn't have Moog synthesizers that could duplicate a bass. So we had bass players overdub uh, Ray's bass line because plucking on a string gave it more punch and we needed more punch. Just technical shit. Yeah. But... Um, 
Yeah, it, it, it made the sound more open. There was more room for improvisation, interaction, and uh, space is about everything. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of space between one beat and the next. Absolutely. Um, and I think people now, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people that celebrate it, and rightly so. Um, but I think it's probably difficult for people uh, to get their head around what it must have been like to be in Southern California um, as a, a musician uh, on the rise uh, in that era in the 60s when, you know, the Sunset Strip and, and in Laurel Canyon and, and, and just the, the epicenter of what it meant to be in Southern California and the excitement around the music industry. Um, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, well, it felt like we were taken over. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there were long hairs on both coasts and um, uh, you know, I, I don't like when the 60s are dissed, though. Because, you know, they failed. Well, in fact, uh, civil rights and the peace movement, feminism, all were planted during that time. These are big seeds. They take maybe 50, 100 years for full fruition. So let's, we're on the shoulders of everything before. Let's not diss that. Let's get out our watering cans. You know, like the beats, the, the, the hippies are on the shoulders of the beats and the, and the punks are on the shoulders of the hippies and the grunge is on the shoulders of the punks. So we all feed each other, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, a con it's a continuum. It doesn't, it's not like it's replaced. It's just, uh, it's like a river. It moves and, and flows and there's a new mile to it, but it's the same river, really, you know. Yeah. So the, yeah, the 60s, you know, we, I, I feel sad for, yeah, it was a renaissance, I, obviously. I'm yeah. a little sad for people who, who lament that they weren't born during the 60s. But um, gee, you know, I witnessed uh, the Watts riots and then nothing happened. And then I, 92 uprising, I knew because nothing happened. And during that one, money was talked about or moved around, but I think it was embezzled or something. And I got to say now, wow, worldwide, young and old, uh, this Black Lives Matter, uh, man, and there might be some movement here, you know? We do yeah. have a uh, Black vice president, a woman. Yeah, okay. I remember saying when Hillary lost... Damn it. I, before I die, I want to see a woman president. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're getting there. <laughs> Not that they can have all the answers, but, you know, Biden's right. If it's a little more. OK, here it is. Diversity, just like in music for me and Dudamel, elicits strength. Absolutely. So if 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 it's more diverse and representing all of us in America, we got some power here to make this thing work. As Leonard Cohen said, democracy is coming to the USA. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. We're still working on it. Yeah. Exactly. It's, uh, uh, we're, it's the worst system in the world, except for all the rest. Say yeah. that again. It's the worst system in the world, except for all the rest. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I, 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 um, and uh, uh, I think that the uh, United States has... The great experiment that is the United States has always been a template of what the future is going to be. It's like we're the first ones to the future because things aren't going to get worse, you know, isolated and segregated. Everything's going to be mixed. And we're the first ones to sort of build our country around that. So yeah, uh, we can't deny it halfway through, you know. Um, I mean, how do we reach across the aisle here, Jeff? Uh, so there's people who are squirming on the other side of the aisle that uh, you know, uh, oh my God, the, the, the races are, you know, the blacks and the Latinos are taking over. Uh, maybe they can do it better. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all together. Don't worry, folks. Let's hold yeah. hands. God damn it. Absolutely. I think, well, I, you know, it's the, this is the, uh, I, I it brings to mind with uh, the great historian, Dave McCullough, 
uh, said after September 11th, uh, when everybody was saying September 11th was the worst day in the country's history. And uh. I said, you know, I gotta say, I, I, I you know, 1776, kind of rough. Yeah. You know, like our first year was our, the roughest year we ever had was our first year. And, and, he, and it led to him writing the book 1776, which is just a brilliant piece. And it's, it is about the sort of context of it. But I mean, we this has been a, a crazy idea since the country started. And uh, it, it's, it should have fallen apart many, many times. Yeah. And, uh, but I think that we seem to find just what you said, that we have more that, link system that separates us you know hopefully and, and yeah, yeah we all care about our kids and we all care about yeah you know, the future hopefully and and you know we're having to look at how racism is kind of built into the system and hopefully we can weed it out some more and i'm also thinking about this pandemic feels like the end of the world and and no disrespect to all the suffering uh but there is a little something to be learned here uh the greenhouse gases are down oh okay we, we got a pretty big footprint on gaia uh, the earth so maybe when we come out of this it, keep that in mind and shore up global warming a little or whatever the hell let's learn something from all this you know yeah yeah and then learn to do and learn to do things differently and, and hold on to who we are at the same time i i remember seeing you playing um I saw you with your uh, jazz outfit, uh, and you were doing. Uh, I think it was. I think it was break on through. I want to say it's break on through. Did you do that with the jazz quintet? Uh, I think we did Riders on the Storm. Was it Riders on the Storm? I, where Where did you see us? Oh come now. Oh sorry. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I, uh, I remember there was a microphone that place. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it was. I remember it was great. Um, Skirball. I know we played the Skirball. Yeah, it, it it might have been Skirball. Did you? Yeah, it was probably Skirball. You didn't do Paley Center, right? No. So I think it's probably Skirball. But uh, I just remember thinking, like, here's something I love because uh, it's one of my favorite songs, and 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 here's a guy I I've had the honor of talking to, and and look at he's he's doing this song that I've I've known since I've known music, but he's doing it in a new way, and 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 it's it's arriving to me in a new way. And, and I just thought how cool that is. Like, I mean, it's a simple thing, but when uh, when people uh, can channel themselves and their art into new directions and still hold on to the essence of who they are, well, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the ideal for an artist. That's the definition of growth. Yeah, I, you know, whenever somebody covers one of our songs, you know, if they just copy our arrangement, eh, you know, that's okay. But when they discover an entirely new, different way, like like Jose Feliciano turns "Light My Fire" into a ballad, yeah, like wow, this is cool. It's really different, and people are sort of some people are narrow and saying it's it's not like the original. Well, no, it isn't. It's if it completely was, different. It would suck. Like yeah. if it was a if it's a copy, you know. Yeah. What 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 are some of some of the other is there any other covers that spring to mind that you really kind of enjoyed uh through the years i mean uh, feliciano is a is an obvious uh not an obvious one it's a, a fantastic uh example oh i can't off the top of my head not much there's a lot of jazz versions of light my fire uh yeah. i think uh uh coltrane's producer did had the light my fire orchestra or something i don't know yeah well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that, but Jose is uh, such a, it's just an enticing version of the song. It, it, it's a totally different energy. You know? Soulful. Oh, it's very soulful. Exactly. Absolutely. And then for you, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember is that you would always sign your emails when we first started communicating as Ringo. And I always thought that was so funny. I thought that was such a funny, such a funny little uh, gag for uh, the drummer of the doors to call himself Ringo. Yeah, I, I still do occasionally. Yeah, uh, you know, Ringo's terrific. And, and I think I quote him in this book because I wax on a bit about how um, it's, it, music's got to breathe. And I love dynamics. And I'm not the fastest drummer, but <clears throat> if, uh, if you push the beat, then you're playing kind of polka or military music. If you lay back, you're playing the blues. And all that feeling is really important to drummers well to all musicians i think in the elvin jones chapter i quote 
monk. Thelonious has 10 tips for musicians. The first one is have a good sense of time, especially if you're not the drummer. Oh my God, that's fucking brilliant. That's you know? pretty great. You can, solo, you can solo on sax or guitar like crazy, but if you don't have the internal metronomic pulse, nobody cares. Yeah, exactly. I always yeah. I read that Bobby Darren had perfect time. That uh, he was one of those people that was born with it. Uh, yeah, I, I sounds true. Yeah. And Thelonious Monk. Uh, he's got to win for the greatest name ever. Like I don't know if there's a better <laughs> name in the history of music. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the loneliest plunk well fantastic well uh the seekers is such a good book and uh it's uh it's been just such a treat job to have you on and, and it's such a great way to start this new year i have so much high hopes for this uh new year i have high hopes for this podcast yeah. and uh and for everything and it's really nice to to start that uh the ritual of this year with uh a, a true uh shaman powerhouse <laughs> tribal uh, icon of uh, of rock and roll and a, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, hey, I feel helium rising in my skull. Thank you. That's fantastic. So, do you have anything coming up with uh, the book that people should know about? Any appearances or anything coming up? Uh, no, we're of course all not. It's a pandemic. Our... What am I talking about? <laughs> yeah, but I, I was thinking, you know, I haven't seen you in many years, and uh, hopefully down the road we'll be together at the Bayou Fest in Long Beach. I guarantee it. You come down Rockin'. to Long Beach, I'll take you, when when possible, I'll take you to the city's finest pool halls because I know them all. Oh, okay. Sounds good. That sounds like a date. That sounds good. Well, uh, thanks again, John. And, and Yeah, uh, you bet, man. And you have a great year, man. You too. All, all right. the best. John Densmore, thanks a lot. Well, I think I'll always remember meeting John Densmore for the first time, hopefully not last time. Yeah, uh, it's uh, he's a true original, and uh, you know, uh, I I didn't grow up in Southern California. I came out here from Florida, and uh, but I've been in Los Angeles since 1992, and I think of him as one of the people that sort of really represents Southern California to me. Like, uh, oh yeah, you know, he one of the you know the music the music industry and being part of the Sunset Strip scene and and uh, just what the Doors, you know, uh, it's. Other than the Beach Boys, it's hard to think of a 60s band, uh, American band that made a bigger impact than the Doors. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's always a treat to talk to him. And I'm always kind of excited that he does talk to me. Like I always uh, pleasantly surprised uh, in, a, in a funny way, just because, uh, uh, you know, as we were talking about before the show, when you are aware of someone, uh, famous musician or a famous actor or a famous director or what have you uh, as a young person and then you grow up and you get to meet them it's always a slightly surreal because you never really kind of anticipated that that being part of your uh, your life at the time I want to make a quick correction I think when I was talking during the earlier part of the show I said that uh, the Doors had a uh, 1960s deal to uh, use Light My Fire in a Ford Opal commercial of course our car our car fans will know that i meant the buick opal not the four gotcha. so i i just want to apologize to my friends at the buick uh plant <laughs> in flint michigan for anything i did to denigrate the the opal or its its fine line of cars <laughs> well I th i'm sure they will really appreciate that um, i was I'm actually sure. really stressing that we are going to get a strongly worded letter from the buick people you know, once you don't want to, you don't want to get a rebuke from the Buick people. A Buick no, people definitely is not. A, is a, it's just not good for anybody. <laughs> so, um, you know, before the uh, interview, I told you a little bit about that story that ran in the LA Times. Uh, it's a long, long, long story, and people can find it online uh, if you just put in my name and remember it's Jeff with a G, uh, and the last name is B O U C H E R. If you put in my name and John Densmore, and then if you add uh, Buick Opal, uh, O-P-E-L, it will pop right up. It's worth the read. Uh, but I was thinking, um, I wanted to read the end of it because it's kind of a funny ending. You know, it, the, the story had Ray Manzarek, who's the keyboardist from The Doors, and then John Densmore, of course, who we just talked to, was the drummer in The Doors. And at this time, uh, in 2005, they were in a heated 
feud and uh, uh, you know litigation and things were not good. Um, and uh, John would later write about this period of time in his life in, uh, in the book, uh, Doors Unhinged. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of how things were. And everybody uh, was mad at John for walking away from all this money. Everybody wanted the money. Later, John and Ray would have a, a, a reconciliation. Uh, Ray has since passed away. Uh, but uh, in the book, uh, John writes about him in, in, in warm tones. And uh, as a fan, it's nice to see them back together. But when I wrote this in 2005, they were not back together. Uh, this is the last few paragraphs of that long story. So let's see. For the time being, Manzarek has said that the band will continue on with the name Riders on the Storm. That's the touring group that he was playing with. Densmore said he would not dispute them on that. Manzarek said that fans and reviews have been great and that Ian Asbury of the Cult has the same dark, shamanistic, powerful, Celtic, Christian, mystical vibe as his old friend Jim Morrison. Uh, Ian Asbury was the lead singer of the Riders on the Storm group. Gotcha. Manzarek said the group will soon record a new studio album as well. It doesn't matter what we call it, it's still Robbie and I still playing together. Uh, excuse me. It doesn't matter what we call it, it's still Robbie and I together playing Light My Fire and Love Me Two Times. Look, John should come and play and let us celebrate and keep this music alive, Manzarek said. Look, what do I say to the cynics? I would like to play with Jim Morrison again, but you know what? I can't call him. I'm sorry. He's dead. He's busy. He's in eternity. That's, again, Ray Manzarek in very vivid terms describing his position on it. Um, I took that back to John Densmore uh, on the phone. I, I told him what Ray had said, and this was John's reply in the end of the article. Densmore said he tires of all the bickering. So what about that invitation from Manzarek and Krieger? His answer, quote, I would love to play with the Doors, and I would love to play those songs again. I would. And I will play again as the doors, just as soon as Jim shows up. It's a great, <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, I, I, when he said it, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like sometimes in the notebook, you put a little star next to things because you know that they're going to work out just nice. So yeah, highlight it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I thought you'd get a kick out of that. That was kind of fun. That was, that was great. So yeah, people can definitely, if people just type in your name and John Densmore, by the way, it's the first thing that pops up, LA Times article. Oh, it, oh good. Okay. I wasn't yeah. sure if it popped up that fast. Oh, that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. That's so terrific. people can definitely check out that article. Uh, we'd love for people to also check out his new book, The Seekers, uh, available on Amazon. And uh, But before we go, I know we have the essential shelf for the week, which we have something a little different, not your mainstream comic, really. Yeah, this is a, a, a underground comic, uh, comics with an X, C-O-M-I-X, as they say. It's a C-O-M-I-C-S. Um, I came across this uh, uh, in the 1980s, late 1980s, when I was in uh, college at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, go Gators. And uh, they, it's, uh, it's American Splendor. And, uh, some of our listeners will recognize that name and know what it represents right away. But for others, uh, it'll be a new thing. And, and I'm really excited for you if it is a new thing, because I, I love these comics. They are not superhero comics. They're not science fiction. They're not war comics. They're not uh, jungle adventures. They're, you know, all the, there's all these different kinds of comics that we're used to seeing, especially superhero comics. Uh, but this one is, uh, of sketches of real life. It's a biographical comic. It's a memoir, an ongoing extended memoir written by the uh, now late Harvey Picar and um, illustrated by a great number of people. He, he's worked with different artists through the years um, and among them famously are Crumb, Robert Crumb, who is you know, a titan figure in American cartooning and is one of the great, great cartoonists uh, in history. So American Splendor, as I discovered it, is uh, the sort of internal monologue and life and times of Harvey Picar himself, who is when I met him in the early volumes, and I start, I suggest you start with volume one, American Splendor. There's been these really great out, uh, collective collections of them, and, and they've been you know, enough to fill a shelf over the years, quite honestly. But uh, when, when the story first meets him, he's a clerk 
uh, working at the Veterans Administration Hospital uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, none of those are, none of the things I just said make it sound like something you want to read. I am aware of that. <laughs> Unless he's about to get bit by some sort of radioactive something. There's no, uh, there's no radioactive uh, bites. There's no uh, a gamma bomb uh, explosions. There's no rockets from another planet. Uh, there's a lot of Cleveland and there's a lot of VA hospital. And again, I understand that that's not going to make this sound attractive, but what it is, is he, the guy has a, a fantastic ear for dialogue and he has uh, a real curmudgeon's view of things. He's very cynical and, 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 and very candid about the limitations of his life, but he does have these, uh, these obsessions um, that, uh, you know, that where we can really see uh, a different side of his, uh, and hear a different side of his voice. And, you know, he's a, a avid collector of old records uh, and uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of early blues and, and uh, lost figures from that, that era. And uh, so that's, that adds a whole nother uh, sort of nuance and, and uh, payoff to the, the stories as they go along. The stories are mostly all in black and white uh, simple art by different artists, as I said, and Harvey Picard became kind of a celebrity with these um, in a sort of an underground, uh, off-kilter way. Uh, he made a number of appearances on the David Letterman show, where he, uh, his personality came across, and that led to eventually a film, uh, a very unlikely uh, film, but along with Road to Perdition, maybe and Ghost World, uh, one of the three best comic book movies ever made that people forget is a comic book movie. Uh, and that would be American Splendor, which starred Paul Giamatti and uh, got some great attention uh, and deservedly so. Um, so that gets it a little further into the voice of Harvey Picard. But for this week's Essential Show, um, the, uh, the early volumes of American Splendor uh, by Harvey Picard and assorted collaborators is the uh, emphatic and proud new inclusion for this week uh, to our collection of you should read before you can't read and you should read because they must be read. Yeah. Well, I'm going to check that out for sure. I'm looking forward to reading something in the comics world that isn't necessarily a superhero comic. So I yeah. think it's a great and unique selection for the shelf. Yeah, you know, and and uh, and I, I heartily recommend to people they check out. There's there's a great time for crime comics, you know, like Ed Brubaker's work. Uh, there's really good crime comics being done. There's really good um, journalistic books being done. You know, uh, people like Joe Sacco uh, with his books, things like Palestine, where he actually goes as a journalist and covers, uh, you know, volatile and complex geopolitical situations, and then communicates that in graphic storytelling. Uh, and our buddy Ethan Sachs just came out with COVID Chronicles, which is, you know, exactly. all about people, you know, dealing with the pandemic. Exactly. So it's, it's a really fascinating time. I think, uh, uh, you know, for journalists like me, it's, it's exciting to see that as a, as a new possible way to do things. I love comics. I love journalism. So why not do journalism comics? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an exciting time, even though, at the same time, cross currents, we have all the, the turmoil in the comics industry amid this pandemic and amid sales trends of recent you know, years. So um, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. But that's, <laughs> yeah. but that's uh, something that Harvey P. Carr would definitely understand. And it is America in all of its splendor. Yeah, well, you know, it's a good time to read comics since you're stuck inside all day anyways. So we'll have people check those out. Um, start with volume one, as Jeff said. And as I said earlier, let's definitely check out um, John Densmore's new book, The Seekers, where you can get a great inside look for all these, you know, like icons of a, you know, of a generation. Um, and we'll have people go check out your article as well. Sounds good. That sounds good. Well, Jeff, it was such a treat to get to hear you and John talk and I, like I said before, I hope this isn't the last time I get to meet him. I hope he comes on the show again. Yeah, me too. I, I, I have high hopes for that. And uh, 
I have high hopes for 2021 and uh, happy new year to you, Evan, and to all our listeners on uh, out there in the mind space universe. And thanks for sticking with us. And, you know, uh, we're just getting started. Yeah. And if uh, we don't necessarily have a guest to tease like we've been doing next week, but we have some exciting things cooking, some trivia games that we're going to play with some previous guests uh, to look forward to soon. So we'll definitely have more info on that as it comes. And we look forward to you guys listening. Sounds good. Take care. All right. See you, Jeff.